everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Scott Harrison. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. Scott spent almost 10 years as a nightclub promoter in New York City before leaving to volunteer on a hospital ship off the coast of Liberia as a volunteer photojournalist. Returning home to New York City two years later, he founded the nonprofit organization Charity Water in 2006, turning his full attention to the global water crisis and the world's 785 million people without clean water to drink. He created public installations and innovative online fundraising programs to spread international awareness of the issue. In 15 years, with the help of more than a million donors worldwide, Charity Water has raised over $600 million and funded 79,136 water projects in 29 countries. When completed, those projects will provide more than 13.2 million people with clean, safe drinking water. Scott's also been recognized as Fortune Magazine's list of 40 under 40, Forbes Impact 30, Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, where he was number 10, by the way. That's legit. He is currently a World Economic Forum young global leader and author of the New York Times bestselling book, Thirst. Scott and his wife, Victoria, have two children, Jackson and Emma. And what's interesting is my daughter, McCray, babysits his kids. Scott lives in Nashville now. He moved from New York City to Nashville He's been a friend for years. We have a really fun conversation. The transition from nightclub promoter, who's like his only job was to pack out clubs to saving the world is really fascinating. It's so fascinating. I texted Scott today about, hey, I might need to put some of that story in my next book because it's such a good story. So I think you're going to love this episode. But first, a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. You've heard me say it before, goals are not easy, but they are simple. Personal goals are hard enough, but if you're leading the team, that's even harder. Good luck keeping everyone on track and focused. Did you know that 92% of people don't achieve their goals? 92% according to our University of Scranton study. That means only 8% of people actually finish what they start. The good news, there's some hope. And I'm excited to share it with you today. You've got to check out Leader. It's the first ever people development software that helps you and your team set clear goals and track progress over time. It's called Leader, L-E-A-D-R. With Leader, you can simplify goals for your team. You can add collaborators across the organization. You can include clear action items and updates throughout the week, all in one easy to use platform. Imagine what your team could accomplish if every employee was engaged and growing with clear goals and consistent development at every level. Contact Leader to set up a custom demo for your team today at leadr.com. That's leadr.com. More than 600 organizations are already using Leader to track goals and develop their teams. And use promo code ACUFF, that's A-C-U-F-F, for 20% off when you book a demo at leader.com. All right, let's jump into my interview with Scott Harrison. Scott, it's always fun when I actually know the person I'm interviewing. So thank you for joining me on the All It Takes is a Goal podcast. I'm pumped about this conversation we're about to have. This will be fun. I love talking about goals. Yeah, and and you're a guy who's done some crazy goals. You're probably currently engaged in some crazy goals. 
But I want to start by talking about this massive pivot you did. Because I think everyone, we're so sick of the word, like we're sick of unprecedented times or the Mm -hmm. new normal and like, but we all had to pivot on some level, but yours was years and years ago. You're a club promoter, Bacardi and Budweiser are paying you two grand a month each to be seen drinking their products. Like just holding a Budweiser because you're kind of at the top of this New York club promoter scene. Like you are at the parties that normal people like me assume are happening. You're like, I'm running a movie at Blockbuster right now in 1998, but I think something cool is happening I don't know about. And and you were actually there at that cool thing. And you pivot to Charity Water, which is this crazy, no one puts those two things back to back. If you are going to draw out somebody's resume, they're not back to back. How did that pivot come about? You know, it's funny. I describe it as not a pivot because it was so opposite of what I was doing. Yeah. I mean, this was not a course correction or a small change. You know, I guess uh, kind of just briefly, really three chapters of my life. The first was growing up uh, as an only child with a mom who was an invalid, uh, taking care of her, good Christian kid, played Sunday school, you know, piano in Sunday school. Where'd and you didn't grow smoke. up? Uh, I was born in Philadelphia and raised in New Jersey. Okay. So just very ordinary life. Uh, didn't smoke, didn't curse, didn't drink, didn't have sex. Didn't know dad in the, no, there was dad no dad was in the there. picture. Dad was there. Loyal dad okay. who, you know, my, my mom started wearing a mask when I was four years old and I never really saw her face. Okay. So she, there was a terrible carbon monoxide gas leak in our home. Uh, it almost killed all three of us and it wound up just irreparably damaging my mom's immune system. So she was just never the same again. So, you know, I was doing the cooking and the cleaning and helping to take her later to doctors. And So at a young age, are you an adult? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, a lot of responsibility at six, at yeah. seven, at, at eight. So a lot of independence. I, I knew I was needed. If you'd asked me then what I was going to do when I grew up, I would have been a doctor to cure mom and people like her. Yeah. Act two was moving to New York City at 18, uh, smoking two packs a day, drinking, uh, doing every drug under the sun, and, you know, trying to chase, you know, beautiful models around the world. You don't go to college? Like you, I mean, like, how do you, so like at 18, a lot of kids are applying to college and you're like, I think New York, like bright lights, big city kind of situation. How did you make that decision? At 18, I was in a band that was playing at legendary clubs in New York City, CBGBs and Mm -hmm. the Lion's Den. And I was, you know, my hair was down to my shoulders, which was a terrible idea. We would be opening up for you two at Madison Square Garden, you know, in the next coming few years. Yeah. Okay. So that was, that was, that was, if you talked to me at 18, Um, the band immediately broke up like three months later because we all hated each other and everybody was doing drugs. Yeah. And then I started working at a music store uh, in New York City. I started building websites for plastic surgeons. And then I found this extraordinary uh, career as a nightclub promoter where I realized that if you could get the right people inside, the right clubs, you know, you could charge them $25 for a cocktail. You could charge uh, $1,000 for a bottle of champagne that cost 40 and people would <laughs> yeah, gladly yeah. pay it. So, you know, that was kind of uh, act two. And it was in some ways a rebellion against my conservative upbringing. Maybe the fun I never had as that adult child taking yeah. care of mom. And, um, you know, we didn't go on big family vacations. We didn't have a lot of fun. It wasn't, it wasn't fun growing up. So that kind of led me to 40 different nightclubs over a 10-year period. And at 28, 
I thought I had it all. Uh, I drove a BMW. I had a grand piano in my New York apartment. I was dating a girl that was on the cover of fashion magazines and, you know, would walk in the shows in Milan and Paris. And I would fly around to, to sit in the, the fashion shows and, you know, say, oh, that's, that's my beautiful girlfriend. Yeah. And, you know, I just realized, I mean, it's a much longer story, but <laughs> first of all, I had some health issues uh, at 28, maybe no wonder after yeah. smoking 40 to 60 cigarettes a day for 10 years and just kind of realized, wow, there would never be enough. Um, I was, you know, it's like the, the frog that was, that was boiled over time. I mean, I suddenly realized I was emotionally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I was morally bankrupt. And if I died, there would literally be no purpose for my life. Mm -hmm. My tombstone would read something like, you know, here's, here lies a club promoter who got a million people wasted, mm -hmm. you know, full stop. So I realized at 28, what was needed was not a pivot, not a course correction. I, I needed to find the exact 180 degree opposite of everything I thought, said, and did. Mm -hmm. And wanted to kind of reinvent my life completely and see the see if I could find purpose, see if I could be useful. And then what it where it led me was to a pretty extreme place. I went from New York City nightclub promoter to the poorest country in the world, Liberia, West Africa, on a medical humanitarian mission as a volunteer photojournalist. I had gone to NYU part-time okay. and mailed my dad a degree that I never saw. So I was kind of in and out of classes. I went to 40, 50% of the classes, C minus, D plus student, but you know, barely graduated kind of over four or five years just because I was an only child and he'd saved up. So 10 years later, the, this degree at 28 actually came in handy because I yep. said, oh, I have a communications degree from NYU. Please take me on your medical mission yep. as a photojournalist. Like I completely made it up. That's hilarious. So were you always a connector? Because I've, I've been in so many different rooms with you and you're amazing at that. And you can see where the club promote, the thing that made you good at club promotion, there's overlap with how you are able to connect with people on a mission, um, a mission like Charity Water. Was that something that was natural to you? Was it a skill you learned over time? Is it something you practiced? I think I wanted to have fun, John. Yeah. And, and then I wanted to include other people in the fun mm -hmm. and, and promote fun. And so in your mind, ch like changing the world is fun. Well, back then fun was, you know, getting drunk and yeah. doing drugs and staying out till five in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, or, or flying to Milan and then Paris and then London, you know, staying up for five days. I mean, that was a different kind of fun. The, the fun was get past the velvet rope, sit at the right table at the right club with the right people. And your life has meaning. Um, that's, you know, for the last 17 years, it's been a very different party that I've been trying to invite people to, uh, which is about redemption and compassion and generosity. And, you know, hey, let's, let's go get every single person on the world clean water before we die. Mm -hmm. You know, let's get this thing done. But I think the, the skill was promotion and maybe storytelling. We were promoting these clubs, these parties. We were kind of creating this sense of excitement and anticipation as to, you didn't want to miss out on what was going on. I guess, you know, with Charity Water, it's like you don't want to miss out on being part of a global movement that is going to make sure the whole world has the most basic need met. And, and I think about that. 
but it should be fun. Just, you know, if you, if you just think about fundraising, yeah. the first yeah. three letters, John, in fundraising, fun. It's not like shame raising. That's not what I think of usually when I think of fundraising. Right? It's, it's not like, guilt gonna... raising or shame yeah. raising. It's fundraising. How did water capture you? Like of all the things, because there's a million things, but mm-hmm. so like you, you said 17 years, that's a long journey. And you're, at, you're in many ways at the beginning of it. Like when we yeah, talk- second like, inning, absolutely. Second inning of the journey. Yeah. And so like, how does that grab you? How does it still grab you? Because I think that there's people listening, they might never do a charity mission. They might, I mean, I would love them to all be involved in charity water. I think it's amazing. But they might be sitting here listening and going, I have a huge, insurmountable goal. I want to go back to school. I have a marriage that I'm trying to repair. I want to write a book, whatever. And your goal is massive. 785 million people, no clean water. How do you first get connected to water out of all the things? And how do you stay engaged in it, you know, day after day after day? Yeah. Um, Well, the, the, the backstory was I had joined a medical mission, a group some people might have heard of called Mercy Ships that sailed a giant hospital ship, like an ocean liner full of doctors and surgeons up and down the coast of Africa. So my job was going to take pictures and write stories of all the impact they were having. My third day in West Africa, uh, I turned up at 5.30 in the morning for the patient screening day. This was triage day where we had 1,500 available surgery slots to fill. So we're going to give out these surgery cards and tell people to come on the ship to receive their treatment. And I'll never forget, John, over 5,000 sick people turned up for 1,500 slots. Oh, man. So we sent 3,500 sick people home with no hope because we didn't have enough doctors and we didn't have enough resources. Mm-hmm. You know, that left such an impression on me. Um, the visual, you know, there was a the government of Liberia had given us their soccer stadium in the center of the city. And there were different stations set up. And at 5.30 in the morning, I remember rolling up in a convoy of Land Rovers, wearing hospital scrubs with all these doctors and nurses. And the 5,000 people were just brimming in the parking lot, waiting for us to open the doors. When we closed the doors and there were still 3,500 people that had to be sent home, you know, the energy changed. And I just remember weeping realizing, I I later learned some of these people had walked for more than a month from neighboring countries just to see a doctor. Oh my God. Bringing their kids with them from Sierra Leone, from Cote d'Ivoire, from, um, you know, from Guinea, just hoping that maybe a doctor could save their child. And we didn't have enough doctors. So that then led to the discovery that as I went into the rural areas, I, I saw people drinking water, dirty water for the first time in my life. And, you know, you have to contrast this with, I sold Voss water for $10 in our clubs. Mm-hmm. So like weeks before this, yeah. I was, I was like, you that know. That feels uh, like whiplash. Did you not get emotional whiplash? Yes. I was just, I was, I was actually crying like all the time. I mean, just, I had never experienced suffering and, and hopelessness like what I'd seen. I mean, this was a country with no electricity, no running water, no sewage system, 14 years of civil war led by children at the, you know, armed by a, a, a warlord, a tyrant, Charles Taylor. So this was a, this was a rough place and time in, in history. So first, there's just like seeing a problem. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening. Like, there's just something you come across that is not okay on your watch if you can do something about it. 
Yep. You know, it might be homelessness in your city. It might be people learning the kids are trafficked, right? There, there's so many challenges uh, out there in the world. But, you know, when I saw a child drink green, viscous swamp water mm-hmm. that I knew could kill her because that's all that she had. And then I learned that 50% of the disease in the country was caused by unsafe water and a lack of sanitation and hygiene. It, it was just like a eureka moment. And I remember running back to the ship and talking to the chief medical officer who'd been there for 25 years. And I said, you know, Dr. Gary, like people are drinking from swamps. Like if I drank that water, I would die. And he just said, yeah, why don't you go work on that problem? <laughs> you know, and I remember him, you know, paraphrasing. He, he said, you know, I'm going to help thousands of people every year, you know, using my hands through surgery. But, you know, you could be the greatest doctor in the world if you just got what the, the 700 million people clean water, mm-hmm. you know, you would so radically transform global health by providing the basic need. Actually at the time, John, there were a billion people without water. It was one out of six people on the planet didn't have clean and safe water to drink. And I just came back after two years of volunteering and I'd, I'd quit drinking and I'd quit smoking and I'd quit the gambling and like had vowed to just, you know, swear off all the vices kind of full mm-hmm. stop there was something symbolic about walking up the gangway of a 522 foot hospital ship. And then the gangway would lift and like all of my crap was left on land. Ah, yeah, and then I would yeah. sail away, you know, to a new life and yeah. a new continent. Um, so I, I, I was able to really kind of hold the line for, you know, now 17 years yeah. on, on that, that former life or the, the vices that plagued me back then. So I came back after two years and I was 30 and I said, here's my issue, water. It's an inarguable common good. It's going to be one of the easiest things to promote mm-hmm. because- We've all heard of it. We've, we've, we've all we've, heard of it, right? Yeah. There's, there's arguably no greater, you know, substance <laughs> yeah. that humans it's, need. It's had right? a good run. Like water a, in general. Water's had a pretty good run. Well. And then, you know, later I came to learn that you know, this was really a unifying issue. I mean, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent or libertarian, mm-hmm. whether you're a person of faith, whether faith is anathema to you, like all of these, you know, where, wherever you stand on various social issues of the day, everybody can come together and say, people need clean water. Mm-hmm. Humans need clean water. So I, I realized that the movement would be able to build a pretty big tent where we could invite everybody a child would understand this and a 95 year old at the end of their life would understand the need for, for this. So how do you get started? Cause again, it feels like a massive thing. You know, is it that you say, you know what, I've got all these contacts still in New York. I've got all these connections or I have, you know, I, I'm going to hang up a shingle. I'm going to get a business card that says water. Like what are some of the early steps? Because now it's this massive organization but what would you say, you know, are the beginning steps of a dream this big? Well, my poor friends in New York, you know, that were on a mailing list for a decade where they got invited to fancy clubs yeah. were very, uh, in, in a whiplash, subjected to pictures of leprosy and <laughs> yeah. videos of facial tumors and dirty water and, you yeah. know, really extreme suffering. Similar to a nightclub. You know, I'm taking us back here. Like open rates on emails were like 95%. So, you know, if I sent out an email, everybody got it. 
Yeah. So there were there was a large uh, swell of unsubscribes in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. The list got smaller, but then it actually started to grow. So I was documenting the two years that I was there, inviting people into the story, inviting them to contribute their time and their money um, to, to help Mercy Ships. And I, I learned that that worked. So day one of Charity Water, I mean, John, honestly, the only idea I had, and this is 15 years ago, was to throw a party in a nightclub for my birthday. I'm like, I think I can get a club donated. Uh, I think I can get open bar donated for my friends. And let me send out an email and say, it's my 31st birthday. Come to the meatpacking district in New York and make a $20 donation to get in the club. And that was day one of Charity Water. We raised $15,000 in cash that night. Crazy. I'll never forget. There was a, a weed dealer that I knew for many years and he crumpled up $500 and he threw it in this box and he said, this is the first charitable donation I've ever made in my life, but I know where this money's going to go. <laughs> so good. You know, we, we collected the $15,000 and I'd, I'd made a promise that 100% of whatever we raised with Charity Water uh, from day one and, you know, until we, we ended or until we solved this problem, 100% would go directly to help people get water. And we would raise all of the overhead costs in a separately audited bank account. So I, you know, I said, look, if you give $20 or if you crumple up $500, all the money is going to go. So we collected $15,000. We immediately took it to Northern Uganda and we built our first well and fixed a few wells. And then we sent the satellite images of these finished projects along with photos and video back to the 700 people. And it was a very simple, you know, hey, John, thanks for coming to my 31st birthday party. Here's what we did together people are drinking clean water thousands of miles away. And here's the proof of where your $20 went. And I remember people were just so blown away. You know, I mean, some of them probably didn't even remember coming to the party. (laughs) They'd had such a good time and, you know, but, but certainly had never expected a fledgling charity to show them proof of, of impact. And I remember just saying, you know, to a bunch of volunteers that were around at the time, like, let's just keep doing this. Let's just kind of, you know, raise money, send 100% to the field and show people what their money did. Like, it seems so yeah. simple. I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about you is that you mentioned the 100%. You clearly had a couple of like, these are going to be our guiding, like these are pillars. When we do this thing, we're doing it this way. It's going to be different than how other people do it. So it seems like you had a couple pillars, but one of them was that you were going to you keep it simple so that people, that a lot of people could understand it, a lot of people could get it. Would you say that you put a focus on simplicity? There's a million ways to complicate everything. My gosh, my gosh, yes. And, you know, my wife and I have coached a lot of nonprofits over the last 15 years. And I swear sometimes someone will tell me, you know, the mission of their organization, and I have absolutely no idea what they do. So I think, you know, maybe just because I'm not that smart, you know, I try to communicate like to my seven-year-old. Yeah. And I try to think of Charity Waters communications, you know, through email, even, you know, I, I might be writing tech billionaires, but, yeah. you know, speak in plain English and just make things simple. I think maybe, you know, alongside that, I was really trying to solve problems. And I think all entrepreneurs, whether you're starting a small business or a social, you know, venture, there was no water charity to go join at the time. The largest water charity in America was raising like $10 million a year, you know, a, a, a fraction of what's needed to even make a a significant dent in this problem. And I was just talking, I was 30, so I was just talking to everyday people 
about charity and giving. And I just realized, wow, there's a huge cynicism and skepticism out there. Uh, I, I came across a, a poll, a USA Today poll, found 42% of Americans just don't trust charities. And a, a more recent one actually found 70% of Americans polled believe charities waste their money. It's like, you had one job, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you have one job. Yeah. Like, don't yeah. waste people's money or don't make them yeah. feel like you're wasting their money. So the 100% model was really like the solution to that problem, the disillusionment problem. I thought, well, if I could come up with such a clear and simple answer to that problem, maybe I could attract the 42% and the 70% and get them to take another look or bring them back to the table of giving. Um, you know, to do that, I'd have to go find people who wanted to purely pay for overhead, like yep. Epson toner and office rent and like the stuff you know, it takes insurance. to actually do the other stuff. Exactly. But I believe yeah. that there would be people out there, business leaders and entrepreneurs who would want to pay for the staff salaries and the flights. So I, I think I just had a vision that both of these things were possible, but it was just simple. You know, a lot of people don't know this to this day. I mean, you know, $700 million later, we still pay back credit card fees so that there's true integrity when we say hundred percent. Ah, So if you so went on our website, if you went on our website right now and you pulled out your Amex and you gave a hundred dollars, we get 97. I wish Amex and MasterCard and Visa waived their fees, but they don't. Mm -hmm. So we actually raise $3 from the overhead group, put it together with the 97 we got with your donation, and then we send and track the $100 that you so intended that to give. So that $100 is the 100 you gave, 100% goes to, exactly. to what you so gave. So it's, it's just so simple. And then when people are like, well, how do you do it? I'm like, we have 129 families who pay all the overhead. Yeah. So it's just the simplicity is really, in a way, like we're no more complex 15 years later, you know, raising over $100 million a year than we were with the same message at that club. Come and give something. Are there times when you've had to eliminate complication, like it sneaks in? Because anytime you grow something, whether you call it bureaucracy, whether you call it, you know, complexity, it's natural that it spawns. Or, or you, how do you keep it simple? I mean, a seven-year-old is a great way to say, okay, can a seven-year-old understand this? Great. We know it's communicating clearly. That's a, sim that's a simplifier. I think the language is just, has just remained simple. Like people need water <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. we turn yeah. money into clean water. Like we built a machine, you know, now a hundred million dollar a year machine that takes money and turns it into clean water in an effective and transparent way you know, the mission, like Charity Water brings clean water to people in need. Like it's a really simple mission. Yeah. So if anything, I think it's gotten simpler over the years. You know, we were probably a little more bumbling in the early years. Yeah. I love that though. If you think about it like a machine, you put money in this end and the other end, water comes out. It's like a machine that turns cash into clean water. Now, there's a lot of in-between in 15 years and a lot of lessons learned and, sure. you know, bad wells drilled and, you know, like just challenges. We work across 29 nations. Yeah. Um, but, but that is really how I, yeah, I mean, I'll explain that to like a tech billionaire, you know, who's very, very sophisticated. It's like, you know, the details in the machine, my gosh, I mean, I could talk for hours on the processes and the rigor and the vetting and the auditing and, you know, currency hedging and right, all, all the complexity that goes into running, you know, a multinational humanitarian organization. But we kind of lead with just the simple story. We're helping people get clean drinking water. Do you want to come? Yeah. Do you want to come to that party? Yeah. Do you want to be a part of that? 
you're invited. Yeah. And it's going to be fun. And it's, it's, it's going to be a blast. Like what better thing to tell your kids or your grandkids that you were a part of the world getting clean water? Yeah, that is, that is amazing. Can you think of a time when you were hit with a, whoa, I'm, I'm in over my head moment? Like maybe it's you're on the site and there's, there's five wells going at once or you're in an elevator with Bono and you're talking about, you know, humanitarian efforts. Like a time where you, you said, whoa, I'm in over my head. And then how did you talk yourself back down to a, you know, kind of a, you know what? I'm going to like, we can figure this out. Well, there's two, the, two stories that come to mind. Um, the first was a year and a half into Charity Water, we had been so successful with the 100% model that people were giving a lot of money in the water bank account. And there literally were two bank accounts, like, you know, down at, uh, now it's TD Bank, but like we had the water account, which is where all the money went. And then we would try to scrap for overhead checks in the, you know, overhead account. Mm -hmm. And we had a few weeks left in the overhead account, but like, I think it was $771,000 in the water account. So a huge uh, disparity there. Yeah. And we were, we were going to go bankrupt. We were basically going to become insolvent. And, you know, John, I had been warned against this 100% model. I mean, people were like, this is foolish. What a stupid idea. You know, uh, you, how are you going to pay your people? Like, how would and you rent an office? And these are smart people warning you. Like, that's the yeah. other thing is like, it's easy to, to ignore the warnings of idiots. But no, when it's somebody who's in, yeah, when they're in the space and they, they actually care about you. Like I'm that smart person now telling other people not to adopt our model. <laughs> okay. So like, funny. This is uh, like, oh my gosh, you have no idea how hard, like don't make, don't let make life more complicated. Yeah. This was right for us. Yeah. And the problem we were uniquely trying to solve, but, but let me, I try and talk people out of it yeah. all the time, but it was right for us. And the vision was clear and you know, what we were trying to do required this level of transparency and simplicity of mes messaging. So, you know, maybe one of the biggest things that, that I just, I'm proud of really, if I look back on 15 years is we were faced with this moment and the advice I was getting at that time, I think we had nine or 10 staff was dip into the water account and go borrow against the $770,000. You got to make payroll. You have to pay your people, you know, write a little IOU. And I remember like, I will die on this hill. If I borrow one penny of John Acuff's hundred dollars in the water account, you know, to go pay, you know, a hardworking, you know, charity, charity water employee who took half their pay and gave up their health insurance to build this thing. Doesn't matter. Like there's just a crack in the foundation. You know, it, it will lack integrity and, and no one's going to want to work here, including me. So I started calling lawyers to shut the organization down. I'm like, I failed. Uh, I guess, you know, only well capitalized or, or, or rich people could start a charity, you know, in this manner. I'm a person of faith. So I was praying, but I remember I was praying with very little faith. I mean, you know, like not even a mustard seed. I mean, I was like just <laughs> talking to lawyers about how yeah. to sunset the thing yeah. and crying failure. And at that moment, a complete stranger walked in the office, sat down with me, had an hour meeting. I remember being transparent about where we were at. And then they, uh, they wired a million dollars the next day into the overhead account. Crazy. And we went from insolvent to 13 months of working capital. And, you know, again, that was $700 million ago. So we never looked back. And he said, I love the idea. I love the purity of the model. You just need more time. And I think you probably loved your transparency. I think if you had tried to, in that moment, not be honest about where things were, I don't think he's writing a million dollar check the next day. Yeah. But it could have gone the other way. 
and yeah. there could have been no charity water and we could have ended with, you know, $2 million raised in a dumb business model that, that didn't work. I would have rather had my integrity intact and said, we gave it our go. And, and I might've yeah. tried again just with a different business model. Um, I, I don't think I would have you know, come, come back into the nightclubs. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't see you returning there. The second story that, you know, I, I think of is, is a story from the Central African Republic. And we used to do these big campaigns on our September 7th anniversary, where we would take a bunch of satellite equipment out to the field and cameras. We would raise money for a specific project and then we'd kind of live drill the well. So all the small donors could see, you know, their money in action at the same time. You know, so we kind of made an event out of it, right? It was a little bit theatrical. So we'd found an amazing local partner. He'd been working with the Bayaka Pygmies in the CAR, Central African Republic. And he had this, this one village, it was called Mawale. Just a heartbreaking story. The disease, the terrible water there. And he had had two unsuccessful attempts to get him water before. He had tried to dig a well, you know, over like three or four months, never found water. He tried to drill a well, but he believed that he had the right equipment now and, you know, needed $15,000 from us and this would cook off the campaign. So we raised the money. Uh, we head out there with our equipment. You know, we start drilling and, you know, there's, there's like 500 people just gathered around for two days watching this million dollar drilling machine expectant, right? Is this going to be the time that they get water? The easiest way to, you know, explain it in, Again, to a seven-year-old, we just drilled through quicksand. And every time they would get water, it just turned to slush and the hole filled in. Mm-hmm. And, and we, two days later, had to pull up the drilling rig after two or three you know, different holes in different areas and leave that community no better off. We were supposed to be broadcasting this whole thing. And I remember my team's like, you know, after day one, it's like, you can't broadcast this, yeah. right? Because we would shoot during the day and then we would upload the satellite and then yep. the, the eight hour time difference worked. And I'm like, oh, we're going to broadcast this. We're going to broadcast our failure. Like there was never a, I mean, we could have had satellite connectivity issues or oh, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. storm. We effectively showed them a young organization lighting their money on fire and getting no result. It's like, thank you so much for your donations. Um, we have left this community absolutely no better and we have nothing to show for it. I believed that like, it's the truth. Like you, you just go with the truth and you know, life is, doesn't always turn out the way that you expected. You get in a car, you know, you get rear-ended at a stoplight. Um, you know, you slip on ice and like break your leg. Like, you know, the reality of life is that no matter your, your intent, it just doesn't always work out. And my instincts were, let's just take them through the process. Let's have them share in the pain of our local partners and our team and our, of the community. Um, and, and we promised that we would go back again, you know, six or nine months later to try to find another solution. But that turned out being, um, it, it may be outside of the spring, which was our anniversary video. It was like the most shared video we had ever done. And the comments that we got back was, hey, you know, keep fighting. Like it was like, right? It was, we were being encouraged by our donor community who understood how difficult it was who applauded the tenacity of these local well drillers to try for the third time, you know, instead of just going to, you know, some easy village by the side of the highway. And we eventually went back, I think it was nine months later. And on the fourth try with new equipment and a mud pump, got them access to clean water. That's amazing. That must've been such a celebration moment. It was pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. I bet 
I bet it was amazing. I, I bet it was amazing. I want to transition a little bit and and ask some more Scott-focused questions because I think the story is fascinating. You're clearly um, someone who puts a lot of care and intentionality into your life. What do you think it takes for people to live up to their potential or to live out of their potential? So there's definitely a lot of people. We, we did a study, uh, me and Mike Peasley, who's this PhD researcher, we asked um, 3,000 people if they feel like they're living up to their full potential and 96% said no. And wow. so it's this really interesting thing that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about working on. But from your perspective, because you've been around the world, you've worked with people at all levels. You, you've mentioned like, I'm talking to a tech billionaire, a seven-year-old girl's raising $10,000 for her birthday, you know, to give the charity water. What do you see helps people live into their potential? I think it all starts with a compelling vision. You need to have that vision of how you're going to contribute or, or what it all means. And then I think that vision has to be redemptive and purposeful. Yeah. So my vision at 18 was I was going to be rich, famous, date beautiful girls, mm -hmm. and drive a Maserati. And maybe have a plane one day. Yeah. And it was all in the pursuit of selfishness. It was a, a me-centered vision. And, you know, I get to work with a lot of people now who are, you know, insanely wealthy and have 10 planes, you know, or 50 cars. And I'll tell you, like, they'll try to outcar each other or out market cap each other. But, you know, I think the, the only two games in town are love and service. So <laughs> oh, come on, dude. When I, at 28, you know, kind of, again, not, in, I, I, re I resist your word pivot. Like when I kind of changed everything, which is what needed yeah. to happen for me, the focus really became on, service. How could I use my time and my talent and my experience in the service of others? And then there was like a freedom, right? It was like all the chains kind of fell off. It's like the, the jail door opened, you know, the selfish, sycophantic, you know, life that I'd been living where there would never be enough, John. Someone was always going to have more. And oh, yeah. I see this now as an outsider, you know, I'll, I, I mean, someone will see somebody else's new house purchase or Right? It's like, oh, that's a little bigger. That's a little nicer. Like, somebody's going to get, get to Mars you know? faster. Like, somebody has a bigger rocket. Like, there's going to be a, like. There you go. So, love, love and service. And I think, you know, having a vision of, you know, how, how you want to be remembered at the end of the, your life or, or the contribution you want to make to the world, how you want to inspire others or lead. You know, I think there's a lot of nuance there. But, you know, for me, it's like, I don't know. My, my favorite quote is from an old like rabbinic text. And I'd seen this outside of Bodega in New York City many years ago. And it said, do not be afraid of work with no end. Don't be afraid of never ending work. And I think, you know, certainly for a lot of us that are engaged in social causes, like there is no finish line. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, I, I know your brother is, is doing great humanitarian work. And, you know, we know so many people in the space that are focused on water or hunger or justice or, you know, right, lifting people up. But when we get to the finish line, you know, let's use charity water as an example. Okay, there's going to be a day on earth, I believe, when everybody has clean water. It's like, well, we're not going to drop the mic and all go become bankers. Yeah. I, mean, I got nothing against bankers. Yeah. I'm friends with many of them. But like, we would take everything we've learned over what, three or four decades, we would take a generous community whom we've built trust with and probably say like, okay, what's next? What could yeah. we do next? What's the next? Should issue? we make sure nobody goes to bed hungry? 
should we make sure there's nobody in the world that doesn't have access to healthcare or, you know, a roof over their head, you know, or, or no child is unsafe, right? What could we do next? And you just changed the vision. That kind of like keeps me going now. I get energized by the idea yeah. of this no finish line, you know, intentional work. And then I think you get to look back and we just, we just turned 15 and we just helped 15 million people get clean water. So it's about one fiftieth of the 771 million people, like 2% of the way there. Yeah. Right. But it's also 750 Madison square gardens full of people. Yeah. When you frame it that way, that's insane. So it's like, like, we've done so little, but you know, I've been to the garden before. Like we sold the garden out for 750 consecutive nights to contain the 15 million people that we've done. So I think you have these kind of moments of like 95% of the energy is spent looking forward, looking forward. We're not going fast enough. We've got to scale up. You know, how do we get to hundred million people? And then you have to have these moments where you're just like, okay, let's just pause for just a second and like celebrate the community and celebrate the team. That's hard for me. I don't, I don't naturally, I, I go to the bigger goals. A friend of mine, um, uh, Daniel X started Spotify, you know, many years ago. And um, I remember being in a Land Rover with him in Ethiopia. And uh, he's like, you know, Scott, we had 700,000 paying Spotify members. And I stood up in front of the whole company. And I said, we're going to 100 million. And we're going to do it in less than a decade. And I think it took him 11 years. And now he's at 180 million going to a billion. So I love big goals. I'm energized by, you know, seemingly impossible on paper goals. Because I think, you know, you wind up doing a lot more in pursuit of those goals. And, and it forces you to non-incrementalize, you know, the things you do every day. I mean, they're going to be, it will take a boldness and, you know, for Charity Water to help 100 million people. There's going to be 10 things we need to do that we haven't even invented yet. And, ten, and 100 things you probably retire. Because we talk about right. that too, and like when you realize... This, this needs to be shut down because sometimes it's ending the thing. What's something unusual that you do in your own life to perform at the level you perform at? I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I interviewed somebody named Derek Kinney and he talked about, he takes a week long sabbatical once a year. Goes away for six days, works on, you know, plans for the year. Um, it can be, you know what, I get up super early or you know what, I always do blank. But what's something that maybe other people don't do, but you've you figured out, you know what, for the Scott Harrison owner's manual, this is important to the owner's manual. And for me, for me to be fully me, I need to do this. My gosh, I just feel like I'm so bad at any sort of discipline or intentionality. <laughs> okay, so one thing that I do very intentionally is I will know when I need to reconnect to the mission and I will jump on a plane to Bangladesh or Malawi or you know Ethiopia or, or India I'll, I'll know when I need to be re-energized. You know, I've been on too many stages in Phoenix or Denver or San Diego and not enough time, you know, in the communities with the people who we're serving. So I, I think I've had a pretty good rhythm up to COVID. You know, life has changed so much just over the last couple of years. You know, I was doing about a hundred flights a year. And somehow managing it and the kids would come and they were younger. And, you know, I was doing the red eye to land at five and cook breakfast and take them to school. You know, now there's just such a different rhythm. I mean, we, when we caught up uh, a couple months ago, you know, we were just, just such a different rhythm of our lives. And I, I think about time a lot 
more intentionally. I guess, sorry, I, I, I didn't have a good answer, so I'm trying to back into one. But. No, no, no. I, but I think that the idea of, because you, you get a ton done, you're connected at a heart level to your mission, your vision. So I don't want you to feel like it has to look a certain way, like yeah. I'm not intentional or I don't, just because somebody else has a different definition of being really disciplined. Because somebody might have answered that question and say, well, John, I'm a connector, so I have, I'm a, I have crazy experience. Excel spreadsheets. And then when I meet somebody and yeah. they mention that they have a dog who's brown and its name is Lucy, goes to my spreadsheet. And the next time I see him, so yeah. I think I think your answer Keith, Keith of Ferrazzi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I think your answer is is super honest of hey, I don't have 52 checklists that I use. Yeah. I, I'm more of a creative. Like it's I, I lose my keys in my wallet. You know, I, I'm it's it's hard. But I think for that's me. encouraging because I think there's people right now that feel on the outside of a mission because they go it's very tempting for an introvert to write a book about networking and go, if you don't network this way I do, then you're not really right. connected to people. And then you go, wait a second. Right. That, no, that's just, that's your thing. So I, I think that you lose your wallet is encouraging to people. Yeah. At this point, you know, at 15 years in, I'm just asking more and more of the question, how can I uniquely contribute to the mission? You know, and it's, it's not in a one-on-one -on -one with my CTO anymore you know <laughs> yeah. i'm like i feel bad for you i feel bad for me like you know right yeah. i just add so little value so i think it's trying to just say you know it, like can i uniquely do this well to contribute to the mission and what things should i stop doing that other people could just do 10 times better than i could and enjoy them and then upping the goals and i'll just you know i'll give you an example um you know and this may sound crazy you know if there's some fundraisers out there but I started asking people for $10 million. And the first person you asked for $10 million, I mean, I was like, you know, it's a version of like cold and sweaty and you think yeah. you're going to get yelled at and like, how dare you? You know, you think I have that much money? You think I would give that much money? And I asked someone for $10 million and then they said yes. And then someone else said yes to $10 million. And then uh, a month ago, someone said yes to $10 million. And then just this last week, someone said yes to $10 million. And then I asked someone for 10 million and they said, why did you ask for so little? And they gave 40 million. Oh, come so, on, dude. So like, now I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, okay, well, I guess like 40 is the new 10. You know, I need to start <laughs> asking people for $40 million. I'm like, well, is that even enough? You know, yeah. a lot of people think that we're really successful. And, and this is my current experience. Like, man, I, I got to like up the goals. Yeah. Because... It's only there if you ask for it. And for all the fundraisers out there, the best thing that I ever heard that helped me, because I used to hate raising money, I was with a, a partner at Goldman Sachs out in San Francisco once, and I said, hey, so I'm about to ask someone for a lot of money. I'm like, have you and your wife ever been asked for like way more money than you, know, you thought or, or that you'd given before? And I said, well, you tell me about it. He goes, yeah. And you know how I feel? flattered <laughs> he said because i asked I, I say two things wow they think that i'm that generous uh, and then i typically go home and say what would it take for me to be that generous oh that's why am i not that generous uh, right if they've done the research well so here i'm going as a fundraiser thinking like i'm literally offending the person yeah and instead of offense he's saying you honor me because you think that I'm that generous, that I would do something so consequential and significant. That is so good. So I try to take that into everything now. 
Yeah, which is a soundtrack. I mean, I, I wrote a book about the soundtracks we listen to, and that's a soundtrack. I'm about to, I'm about to honor this person. It's very different from, they're going to be furious I've asked for this much money. Yep. Like one's a broken soundtrack that's not true, and one's a helpful soundtrack that encourages you to do that. I only have like two or three more questions. So something that's come up a couple of times in this conversation is this idea of kind of having big goals, and I would even say leveling up your goal. So 10 million... Like at one point asking for a million was crazy. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to level up, level up, level up, 10 million. And then somebody said, why'd you ask for so small? Because I think people get to a level where they they don't feel like they can go beyond. I just finished this book, um, The Big Leap, about our upper limits we set on mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. How do you think you're able to kind of go beyond that? What would you encourage somebody if right now they're going, I kind of want to write like a small book and maybe they're supposed to write 10 and and maybe, you know, Maybe well, I think get- you have to start, John. I mean, you have to start, you know, because a lot of people just get paralyzed and they don't do anything. Yeah. We really figured it out as we went along. I mean, it started with a party. And then a month later, I'm like, uh, okay, I want to do like an exhibition and put up a bunch of photos and invite people in the gallery and then ask them to give. And then, you know, then it was something completely different. So it was just this kind of, honestly, it was a flurry of activity to see what stuck and trying to kind of find that that product market fit and to refine the story. In my case, the goal was everyone with clean water. You know, I mean, it sounded ridiculous, but like I was running around, like, you know, a nightclub. But who promoter. would you say doesn't get it? Like, of course it has to be that. You, like, imagine a goal is like a lot of people. There's going to be some people we're not going to care about, but like everyone is the smart goal. Yeah, everyone is the smart goal. And I, and I think, you know, no child hungry. I mean, I, I think that's actually the name of a charity. Like, what a great vision, a vision for a world where there's not a single child who doesn't have enough to eat. Like, we could all stand up for that, right? Like, like that's actually inspiring. Like, so you have to cast that that vision. You know, the actual goal planning, um, I'm always like pushing the team to be a little less conservative because then you get stuck in like an annual budget or three or five year, you know, cycle where you're like, okay, well, let's do 28% growth or 31% growth. And you know, that can lead to just a lot of, let's just do more of everything we're doing. So I'm always trying to push the team to say, you know, what if we doubled next year? What would have to change? And they're like, oh, everything. Like we just couldn't, you know, like, oh, we could, like we couldn't handle everything. Those are the conversations that you need to have. Even if you do wind up with a 31% growth budget, that's the thinking that, you know, I'm always trying to, uh, to challenge myself and, you know, my family and, and then the org. I, I love that. I love it. But you gotta like, you gotta move forward. I, I talk to so many people that just can't go from idea to action. And we just did a lot of stuff in the beginning that didn't work, but we did a lot of stuff. Yeah. Something was going to work. Something, something was going to work. And we stumbled it, into some of our best ideas. Stumbled. In, I love, I love that. I love that. So last two questions. One, what are the books that you'd put on your Mount Rushmore? Like your four books or sometimes people have a hard time with that question. What's the book you've given away more than any other book, you know, other than Thirst? Because you wrote a book, New York Times bestseller called Thirst. But other than your own, what's the book you've given away more than any other? We do give our books away. We don't let anybody buy them, right? I got them in my trunk, dude. I got them like people. (laughs) I have two in the trunk. That's so funny, bro. I have two in the trunk right now. (laughs) I gave away one to a Wells Fargo employee the other day. I went to talk to another one at the teller and he was like, hey, I saw you gave my coworker uh, the book. Thanks for giving it to me too. My wife likes it. So like everyone at the Wells Fargo on Mallory. That's so funny. I gave one to the Uber driver the other night. Yeah, She was talking about starting like a charity. I'm like, 
like, well, listen, okay, hang on a second. Yeah. Hang on a second. Let me run in. <laughs> so true. The dog chased me out. I'm like, here's my yeah. book. Here's the book. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, uh, what have you given away or what, what's on your most read? Getting things done. It's a really old one. David Allen. David Allen, man. Yeah. That was so helpful for me as kind of a scatterbrained, you know, creative futurist to create like systems to get stuff done. And it's just get it out of my head and put it down on a list. Yep. And then try to organize the list. And I think he's updated that book. I just, my wife was just listening to it on audio the other night. I love a book uh, by a guy called John Mark Comer um, about hurry. The Ruthless Elimination the of Hurry. Ruthless Elimination yep. of Hurry. I just think as a, you know, the practices in there of, it's so easy for a lot of us, I think, to, and again, I'm, I'm very wary of the word balance, but to just do way too much. And, and then not do it well and not leave the space for reflection or recharge. And that, that book, I think it's extreme, which is good. Cause it just kind of, every time I read it, I'm like, well, I'm really doing life wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, those are two, I mean, I like anything by the Heaths. Um, Chip and Dan. Yeah. Chip and Dan Heath write some good stuff. Um, I don't know. I'm not a great reader. I'm, you know, podcasts and on planes and I fall asleep a lot to, to audiobooks like i've probably heard the same audiobook like nine times and i like that alarm setting the alarm yeah. setting that you can do where the sleep alarm and you can set it for 10 minutes and then it'll go off after 10 minutes yeah i think that's a helpful feature those are great books last question where can people find out more about you i mean charitywater.org right that's yeah, the url charitywater.org, yeah i i don't uh i don't i'm not a big social media personal guy you probably get mm -hmm. pictures of my kids or I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I'm traveling in the field, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, one, one thing people can check out is, uh, is our community called The Spring. Um, so just go to thespring.com. There's an awesome video there that's gotten like 70 or 80 million views um, across platforms. And it's kind of the charity water story. So it's a great way to learn more. It's our kind of Netflix, Disney Plus, you know, Hulu yep. type giving community. And uh, yeah, just learning more and, and sharing, sharing it with others is, is a big help. And you know, the best is yet to come. I mean, I really believe like as, as gray as uh, you and I are uh, at yeah. this point, we're, um, we're, we're second inning. And I heard my, overheard my wife telling someone the other day that like the most productive decade is, I think it was 60 to 70. Whoa. And then 70 to 80 was the second most productive decade for people. I'm like, I can't even, I, that I doesn't like, even make sense. I I'm like, like show that. me the research. But, yeah. you know, it kind of does in a way. Um, oh, Sacred Fire is another really awesome book. Um, Fire. guy named uh, Ronald Rollheiser. And it's really first half of life, finding significance, finding identity, and then second half, like how can you help? How can you be useful to others? And about mentorship. And yeah, so I, I love that as well. Those are, those are great ones. I've probably given that out 20 times. Sacred Fire. All right, those are great recommendations. And this is super fun. Um, before we started recording, we joked about my youngest daughter babysits your kids. Um, so we <laughs> yes. live we live probably five minutes away from each other. A friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, texted me the other day and was like, hey, I was downtown with Scott Harrison. He said, your kid babysits his kids. And I was like, I love that. Uh, that, that that's, kind of, that's one <laughs> of the She is fantastic. She, if, if my daughter can grow up to be uh, as, as special and thoughtful, as intentional as, as yours. Oh, um, I appreciate that. That's, that's super fun to hear. It's, it's just, Great I love model. that we're in the same city. I hope it lasts a long time. You moved here from, you moved to Franklin, our small town outside of Nashville from Manhattan. So huge, huge change. 
Um, I hope you feel welcome and connected and it's always fun to, uh, to catch up with you. So Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my interview today with Scott Harrison. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. The reviews you write are super encouraging. I've said it a bajillion times. Podcasts are weird because you don't have a ton of audience interaction. Unless you take the show on the road and like you do comedy clubs where you do the podcast, which I don't know if I'll ever do that. I, I don't know if that would be entertaining enough or not. Or maybe it would. Maybe it'd be amazing. I don't know. I think some people do a really good job at it. Who knows? But other than that, it's hard to know how things are going. But reviews let you know. Um, and the review is my chance to hear from you about what you like about the show and what you'd like to see more of. So thank you for taking the time to do that. I really appreciate it. Please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days. And please write a review. Don't forget, visit www.leader.com to set up a custom demo for your team today and discover why more than 600 organizations are already using Leader to track goals and develop their team. Use promo code ACUF to take 20% off. See you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.